0: standing and take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn them open to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm going to lead us in the prayer of illumination, and then I'm going to start reading at verse 18 and read through verse 30. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, gracious Father, again in the name of Christ, we come and ask you for illumination. We come, O oh Lord, and know that it's only you that can minister to the heart. It's you that gives spiritual ears to hear, and Lord Spirit, be and we ask for that, O oh Lord. We ask that as we continue our Lord, well, our walk with you in sanctification, in truth, Lord, even maybe being here this morning and have never come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ for a number of reasons. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts to receive, accept, and Lord, to submit to the teaching of your word. Lord, that you would come and sweetly and graciously address us, Lord, that we would be encouraged to take what we hear, what we learn this morning, and Lord, use it to glorify your name and to. Build and foster and construct our lives in a way, oh Lord, that is becoming of a Christian. That, that Lord, it just exemplifies what it is to be a believer in Jesus Christ. We commit all of this, Lord, to your strength, your power, your grace, and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Begin reading at verse 18. A ruler... Questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich and Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, then, how can, uh, then who can be saved? And he said, These things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, we are entering into that last portion of this long series in the kingdom of God. And once we finish the rich young ruler, we will then turn our attention to the book of first Corinthians. Corinthians. I know earlier I said Joshua, but through much conversation and interaction with many of you, it's been determined that 1 Corinthians might be the better book for us to address as we face the challenges that we face all around us and just living the Christian life in a very, well, difficult and hostile world. So that's where we're going to go in the weeks ahead. But this morning, we will turn our attention to a very familiar text that's been known throughout the ages as the interaction of our Lord and Savior with the one called the rich young ruler. Now, where did he get Such a name. How do we know this text of scripture to be that of the rich young ruler? Well, Luke certainly identifies him in some of those ways, but it's the accumulation of the other gospel text of this same interaction that Jesus has with this young man. Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, all record Jesus' interaction with this rich young ruler, and when you take all three accounts, those, that's what you come away with. Some highlighting His rule, sort of his social status, some highlighting his social standing, his youth and his, well, riches. And, of course, we can see here that from the text of scripture that he comes and he, well, puts a question, a sincere question to our Lord and Savior, one that we will spend today and several weeks Looking into and opening up hopefully to the benefit that we all walk away with at least our hearts being penetrated by the very sincerity of this truth. But also that we might walk away with a clearer, better understanding of that evangelical ministry of our Lord and Savior. This interaction that we have read is this, well, it's this moment where Jesus is sincerely asked a question. And if any of you are well determined and, bent toward being a social witness, getting out there and witnessing of the gospel uh, to those who do not know Jesus Christ, then you long for the day for someone to walk up to you and ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And yet that's the situation here. Now in your bulletin, of course, the title is, well, it's the description of the text, The Rich Young Ruler. But there's, a, but there's another title here that I want us to have implanted in our mind. And that title is, When Good is Not Good Enough. When Good is Not Good Enough. I'm going to spend the next 30, 40, 50 minutes or so. Sixty and explain that subtitle now let 's begin explaining that subtitle by just understanding the context that 's always important isn 't it Something that we try to do and, and uh, ha- take a, make a habit of doing so that when we come to scripture we know that these verses lie within a context and it 's important for us that we don't read eisegesis. That means we just read our opinions into the text, but we want exegesis. We want to extract X out of the text, its meaning. And to do that properly, we we need to understand the context, and then we can then move to application, what it means for us. How do we in the 21st century Take this interaction that Jesus is having with this young man and make application to our lives so that we, well, can be found faithful to its essential message and truth. Now, that's important. Now, the overall, the broader context is Luke is writing this gospel as a commissioner of one named Theophilus. If you go read chapter 1, Theophilus had commissioned Luke to draft a history of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so Luke, in a very painstaking way, in a very accurate, uh, minute way, Luke is putting together the ministry of Jesus Christ so that when Theophilus gets this work from Luke, which would be both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, he would be able to read it And have for himself a very accurate history of the ministry of our Lord and Savior. So Luke is pinning this in this context of the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. That's important to note. That is, there is this sequence of teachings that Luke is presenting in his well, draft of Jesus's ministry. And what he has done is he has put this, this engagement of Christ our Lord right after the, the, the parable of the publican and the Pharisee and the, the accepting of Jesus among the children, which more than likely happened uh, more than once in Jesus's time in ministry, and it's important to note that he's already highlighted what Jesus had to say about rank hypocrisy. Now, that's the Pharisee in the parable. This rank hypocrisy is rejected by God. God rejects it, and what God accepts is humility, spiritual humility, That humility that is worked into the heart of that person to bring them to this understanding that they have absolutely nothing to offer God. There's nothing that they can bring to God. They come with nothing but a pile of sin and they beg for God's mercy. That's humility. Recognizing I don't have the ability to save myself. I can only cry out to God and he's the only one that can save me. Jesus teaches this and he enforces it when he receives the children in his presence. How does he enforce it? He says, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That is the class of these. What are little children? Well, they're completely dependent upon their caregivers. If you lay an infant down and walk away and no one Attends to that infant, that, that infant will perish, he will die. Similarly, if God does not work in our hearts and our minds to illuminate us and to open our eyes spiritually to see our, our, our need, right, to see our sin, well, we too will perish and die. We need God's attention just as an infant needs the care of its parent. Now, Luke brings us to this engagement of this person. We don't know exactly who he is, but he's known as the rich young ruler. Matthew gives us a little more information than Mark and Luke. Matthew tells us that Jesus had spent some time in the home of a Pharisee in, in, well, in debate. The debate that they were having was over divorce. And there was all of this engagement going back and forth between the Pharisees and Jesus and Jesus is leaving the home. And in the process of leaving the house to, again, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's in that final sort of year of his earthly ministry, and he's going to Jerusalem, and we all know what that means. He's going to the cross. He's on his way, and along the way to Jerusalem, There are all of these preordained, predetermined engagements and services that Jesus is going to do and provide and to teach and instruct, and and he's going to take care of all of these things on his way to Jerusalem that he would offer himself as a sacrifice for many. So this is the case. This is where Jesus is going, and now this rich, young ruler runs to him, and Mark highlights this. He runs to him and he throws himself to the ground and he calls upon Jesus as the good teacher and he asks him this great, important question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this morning, I don't want us to move past the well the rich young ruler himself. I want us to look at him. I want us to spend some time considering this person. What was that is, we know what this the, we broader context is with theophilus. We see the immediate context. Well now let's look at the engagement itself. Now, in this engagement, I think we need to consider a couple of things. Number one, I think we need to consider who this person was in essence. We're going to look at his character. We're going to look at his standing. We're going to look at his status. Now, why are these things important? Well, they're important because these are things that mean something to us today, who someone is, That's important to us. Are they a good person or are they a bad person? What about their social standing? Where are they in the social hierarchy of things? I mean, you can't say that's not important. Certainly, people think that's important. I think if there's anything social media teaches us besides the the narcissism that exists that's infecting our own culture is this idea of social standing, right? I mean, let's be clear, I think at least honest, we have segregated everything to only into groups that if, you know, you're in the fold if you agree exactly with me. You're in the fold if you look like me. You're in the fold if you want to be like me. You're in the fold if you look a certain way, you think a certain way. All of these various things, I'm not going to spend any more time on it. You can do with it what you want. But then there's also this idea of him being a ruler that we're going to look at as well. In doing this, though, I want us to consider a couple things. Now there are some that come to this text and they really focus on the the rich part. And they, they work for uh, highlighting well look, see this is a rich man, he can't get to heaven and therefore riches are bad and well, if you're rich you need to feel guilty and you need to do something about it because if you don't then you're really not a Christian. Brothers and sisters, that's a very poor way of handling this text as I will show you. That's not the that's not what the text is actually teaching us. That's what it is. There's some similarities there, and we're going to address those, but that's not what this text teaches. There are others that would come to this text and just point out that well, you know, the rich young ruler was really diabolical. He was insincere. He was a real true hypocrite in disguise. And so he comes faking his question to Jesus. And there are sermons that address the text in that way. And, and, and that's not what we're going to do. I think to get to the heart and the meaning of the text and to get to something that's profitable and beneficial for us in light of the whole counsel of God's word, we need to see it, well, really as it is. So how do we, how are we to recognize the rich young ruler? Well, first, let's look at his character. Let's look at his character I think the character of the rich young ruler is one of integrity. I think he is an upright young man. He is sincere. And I think he is being quite honest. Not only with himself, because he obviously he sees there's something lacking in his life. Now, more than likely, the rich young ruler comes out of this engagement that Jesus was having with the Pharisees. Whatever this engagement was and whatever route this debate took, along the way, Jesus must have addressed what it is to be, well, a true child of God. And it's not a stretch to believe that he was in that room or he was somehow in earshot of this teaching now why do i say that why do i put that forth well because how do you come to your own questions how do you come to questioning yourself isn't it often when there's some engagement particularly with the word of god Maybe you are reading the Word and you come to it, or maybe you hear someone debating it and you think of, well, you hear something that you've never heard before, therefore you single in on that and you fixate on it and you begin questioning your heart in light of those things, or maybe it's the preaching of the gospel, sitting in church, and you hear something and it penetrates your heart. Now, that's the ordinary way. That's the way it was designed, and, and, well, that's the way it normally happens to us. And so there's a reason why this is a very probable situation, well, He's come in contact with this, and now Jesus is leaving. He's on his way. He's continuing his journey up up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was up on a mountain. He's going up to Jerusalem, and this rich, young ruler leaves, and he runs to Jesus, Mark says, and he throws himself on the ground. He kneels before him. Now, brothers and sisters, this is all the looks of sincerity and integrity and and an outward form of humiliation, isn't it? Well, it's not only the posture of the young man, as Mark explains. I mean, Luke doesn't record that. Luke doesn't tell us that. Mark does. And Matthew highlights this, and, and yet he comes, and he has this very genuine and this very sincere question. It does look like, I mean, just in the simple reading of it, that he has a, a, a burdening question, good teacher. And that's another aspect of, of that sincerity, is he addresses Jesus, well, as someone good. He's not there to challenge Jesus. He's not there to put Jesus to the test like many of the other Pharisees were. No, he's there, good teacher. I've heard you teach. I've heard what you've had to say. We know that you are full of wisdom. We know that God is with you. We've heard of your acts, of the miracles that you perform. Good teacher, what must I do? To inherit everlasting life, I mean the rich young rulers acknowledging that Jesus is good. Maybe certainly not to the extent that he needed to, or not in the the true, uh, truth, truth and the theology that he needed to, because Jesus does address that in his answer to him. Well, we'll get there. All I'm doing this morning is laying the groundwork. I think it's important for us to really identify the rich young ruler. And in fact, another reasonable conclusion, even though we know that no person who keeps the law can keep it perfectly and everyone falls short, but, but, it, but even Jesus' interaction with this young man tells us I believe that he's sincere. Jesus doesn't treat him like a hypocrite. In fact, Matthew and Mark highlight that Jesus loved him. That there was some sincerity that was, there was emotion involved as this young man comes and throws himself down at Jesus' feet. I mean, everybody's watching this. this you know, Jesus' entourage sees this. This is a man of standing. This is someone of some stature. And yet he has no problem humbling himself before this teacher and asking this important question, does he? But even Jesus' interaction, I mean, Jesus does not address him, deal with him, call him, or in any fashion address him as being someone that is insincere and hypocritical. In fact, Jesus tenderly deals with him. I think that's why Jesus began with the first table of the law. And of course, when you understand God's moral law and its sort of outwardness, right, right? He could agree to all of these things. I've never committed adultery. I've I've never committed adultery uh, with another man's wife. Of course, he's not addressing lust. He's not addressing the heart issues. He's just addressing the externals. I've never, I've never, well, murdered someone. I've never taken the life of anyone. I've never taken anything that was not mine. I've never told a lie in any important situation. I've always told the truth, and I have spent my whole life saying, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, and no, sir, to my parents, and honoring them. In a very outward sense, the rich young ruler can confirm these things, and, and Jesus is very... Well, let's just use this word. Jesus is very patient and tender with him. Which I think is another aspect of the text of any here this morning. Jesus would deal with you in the same way. In verse 22, it says, when Jesus heard this, he said, well, there's one thing you still lack. Notice how Jesus is Did Jesus just, just, uh, did did he open up the door and unload the whole book of theology on him? No. Jesus, in a very tender, patient, masterfully way, says, well, okay. Well, here's what you lack. And then Jesus goes on and he says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And we'll deal with that verse in detail later. Now Jesus doesn't say riches are bad, throw them away. That's not what he says. He goes, no, you take your possessions, you, 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 or, you organize them, inventory them, sell them, and take those proceeds and begin to help others. That's a good use of money, right? Take this, inventory it, sell it, and go. Now, Jesus in a very loving way is getting to the heart of it. And I think that speaks to my point. Jesus is addressing and dealing with this sincere person or this person who comes sincerely to him, who asked this vitally important question, a question that all of us should ask, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And the text even points out I mean these gospel writers are even trying to help us understand that that both the the person right the rich young ruler he, he goes away. And he's sad. And Jesus is even sad watching him walk away. I think a good, a, a, identifying that is, he was sincere. He came to Jesus. He's asking the question. He wants, to, he wants an answer to this question. Help me. Tell me what I need to do. And I'll do it, he thought. And so Jesus told him what to do. And Jesus told him what to do in a way that would help deal with his heart sins and deal with his own idolatry. Sins and idols that maybe even the young man didn't even know existed until Jesus posited the answer to him. But he goes away sad. And and as the text tells us, look at verse 23. It says, and when he heard these things, that is, when he hears this answer, he became very sad. He's not just disappointed. That's not what the text is teaching us. The text is telling us the idea here is of his whole countenance fallen." Meaning, he, um, all right, look, there's a posture of anticipation to the answer, to the question, I mean. And he does this. He's dejected. And he walks away. That's the picture from the original language. He's completely saddened by what he just heard. And so that. I think speaks somewhat to his Character Number one, his posture, how he come to Jesus. Number two, the question he asked Jesus. Number three, his moral uprightness and standing. I believe the rich young ruler was being completely honest when he said, I've always been respectful to my parents. I've never done anything of malevolent, malevolent to my neighbor. I've not, uh, I'm not, you know, gone lustfully after any uh, man's wife. I mean, he, he said, look, he goes outwardly speaking. Speaking, I have not done these things. I've kept myself. I've disciplined myself. I have not, I'm not guilty outwardly of committing these sins. And I believe he's being honest here. You see, that is, well, that's the case of many people. This world is filled with people that have never committed adultery that are always respectful, that are willing to help, that are not guilty of any outward violence. And yet, beloved, these are moral people. These are people that stand in some moral condition, right? And these are these neighbors that you call, they're good people. And we use that term. It's not a wrong way to use the term. The scriptures uses it too. These are just good people. They're salt of the earth type of people. Are they saved? No. Are they going to heaven? No. Are they able to earn their way to heaven? Absolutely not. But yet, outwardly speaking, they are decent people. I remember engaging a minister one time over what is moral and are there technically any good people in this world? And I, you know, as I've stated, I understand the the statement, meaning that scripture talks about, no, there's none good, no, not one. Romans 3 but we 're not talking about in the spiritual sense we 're talking about in the whole outward sense, and I explained i said well i don 't know about you, but I want my neighbor to be morally upright. <laughs> I want the person living next door to me well i don 't want him stealing my stuff i don 't want him you know coming after my wife i don't i don 't want him always standing in his yard." Shaking his fist at me, wanting to engage in some type of physical altercation. I, I don't want that kind of neighbor. I want a neighbor that at least holds outwardly to these things, and we can talk about the well, what in how do you get to heaven in an personal engagement and evangelism. And he went, "Oh wow, well, me too." I said, "Of course you do." We might call that in theology common goodness. Common goodness, there's a common goodness in this world that God uses to govern societies because if you didn't have that, you would have nothing but darkness and chaos. So let's move on from that. Well, let's talk about, let's move on from his character. Now let's move on to sort of his social status. Well, the the scriptures tell us he was a youth what does that mean? What kind of youth? Was he 15? Was he 18? Was he 20? Well, he was none of those. The, the, that word, that Greek word typically identifies someone that's between 25 and 40. 25 and 40. Not older than 40. But a relative, what we might call a relative young person, right? And what's important, and I think what's in, at least in our, as we address the text, as what Luke is doing here, what we're doing hundreds of years, thousands of years later, as we look at this text to make application to our own life, what do we see? We have the expectation that young people, well, they don't have time for religious things, and they certainly don't ask this time kind of question. But They should. Young people today are more interested in, well, trivial things, temporal things, things that don't matter in any scheme of things, you know, and yet here we see this young man having this genuine heartache about his eternity, He's asking the question. He's obviously lacking something. He knows it. He's heard the teaching, and he's determined. I'm not fulfilled with the way I live, even though I am upright. I'm a good person. I have no, there's no march outwardly against my life, but yet I'm void of eternal satisfaction. And I believe there's a lot, a lot, a lot of people sitting in church that identifies with that. That's what makes this text so penetrating today. And as always. He's a young man. He's, he's, he's coming with this burning heart to say, I want to remedy this. I need to fill the void because good works, money, status, ruler, has not filled this void. He lacks the assurance, my brothers and sisters, of having eternal life. Thus you see now the subtitle, when good is not good enough. As good as he was, it wasn't good enough to fill the void in his heart that existed. There's something missing. And what was that? It was God. It was Christ. It was the gospel. Now, what about his status? We see, so you see his condition. He's young. I mean, he's, he's... he may be young enough where he wouldn't be considered the wisest person in the room. You know, when you sit down and you're engaging someone theologically, you don't typically ask the youngest person in the room for their theological position. And yet, he has come to realize, just like the the sowing, the the parable of the sower when they come in contact with the preaching of God's word being, being sown, right? Some of that falls on rocky soil. Some of it falls on soil that is full of thorns and thistles. Some of it falls by the hard soil, by the wayside. Only one seed falls by this fertile, tilled up ground, and yet... It looks like he's coming, he's got this genuine interest. It's been this exposure, this dissatisfaction in his life or the unsurety and he likes the assurance of knowing. He goes, I don't know that if I were to take my last breath today that I would go to heaven and I need to fix it. Now where we're gonna go is all we're gonna see he really wasn't prepared to fix it. He thought he was. He thought he was, and it was genuine, but when he was put to the test, he failed. He's wealthy. He's a ruler. We don't know what he's a ruler over. Maybe he's some form of synagogue ruler. Maybe he is over some aspect of some building or some control of, of some type of teaching of the Pharisees or whatever. We don't know what kind of ruler he is, but obviously he's identified as a ruler to let us know that he has an elevated office among men. So that he what? He holds this office as a ruler, and yet he is, well, he lacks the assurance that he knows God and that when he dies, he's gonna go to heaven because that's the question. What must I do to go to heaven? He believes in God. He even believes in heaven and hell. Well, what do I have to do to avoid hell and go to heaven? And brothers and sisters, is that not the 80% of the people that you engage with? They believe in God. They will look you right in the eye and say, I believe God, and they're as sincere as they can be. I believe in God. I believe in heaven. I believe in hell. Well, do you have assurance that you're going to go there? I hope so. I want to. Maybe I will. But you can know you have eternal life. And John says, I've written these things unto you that you may know you have eternal life. You don't have to hope so. You don't have to say maybe And brothers and sisters, in all of these things that he had or all of these things that he was, his integrity, his status, his money, none of that filled the void in his heart to give him the assurance that he knew God and that he was going to heaven when he died. So how do we close this message, this first part of this message this morning? What can be our conclusion? Well, a couple of things. I'm going to give you four of them. Now, Jesus, in a very tender but patient and masterfully way, certainly was able to take the young man and show him that there was sin in his life. For he wasn't willing, he was certainly able, he had the physical ability to inventory his stuff and put it up for sale on Craigslist or whatever. He could have done that. So it's not about physical ability, but it's about the spiritual want to. Jesus revealed to him in this interaction that there were other sins in his heart that he had not reckoned with. And the sin, was it the love of money? Partially, yeah, I think it was. But more than anything, I think we go back to the biblical paradigm, it's the love of self. For out of the love of self flows the love of pleasure. Pleasure right? Because we love ourselves. And because we love ourselves, we want to accommodate ourselves. So it's that original idolatry that Adam and Eve fell to in the, beginning of, in the very beginning of creation, where they could either live by the word of God or by their own counsel and wisdom. And if they chose themselves over God, and then they would, well, they fell and they ate from the forbidden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So I think this Jesus tenderly showing him the idolatry of his own heart. I mean, this young man was, I mean, he was around nothing more than the context of self-righteousness and a a self-performing religion. Do these things and you'll be okay. And, And many Christian sermons are like that. Just do this. Just do that. Now, there are conditions But beloved, you cannot just do your way to happiness. You cannot just do your way to eternal life. You cannot just do your way to satisfaction and fulfillment. That's not the way it works. Everything that we desire and rightly so desire, the happiness, the joy, the peace, the comforts, and all of these things flow through and from Christ possessing him. He must be the chief treasure. It, I can only illustrate it like this. I give you a test. One question test. Why do you want to go to heaven? Well, if you say, well, I want to miss hell. That's not a, you know, that's not a, that's not a bad answer, but that's not the right answer. The right answer is I want to go to heaven because that's where my God is. And where your treasure is, right? There your heart will be. I want to be where God is. I want to be where the one who loved me enough to send his son into this world, to lay down his life, to do something that I failed to do and could not do and would never do. I want to I be with the one who gave himself up for me. I want to be with him. That's why I want to be in heaven. I want to be with him. And that's what the rich young ruler failed to do. He allowed sin in his life, even though he was probably unaware to the depths of it until the engagement with Jesus. But brothers and sisters, this morning, we need to recognize that all sin is incompatible with faith. If there is any sin in your life that you are unwilling to give up, You've never come to Christ. You're like the rich young ruler. You may be sitting here and you can answer yes to all these religious questions. You can sit there and say, I'm a good person. I'm a good neighbor. I'm I'm even a good church member. I don't cause any trouble. I conform to all the rules and the outward, whatever I'm asked to do, I can do all these things. But you're not going to heaven. And you're not going to heaven, not because you haven't been invited. You're not going to heaven because you're unwilling to give up those root idols in your life. And that void still remains. And if you have it, you know what I'm talking about. Secondly, there's the world's pleasures are a great hindrance to salvation. None of us like the idea of discomfort. <laughs> you know, I've always been touched and moved and felt guilty when I watched the testimony or listening to the testimony of many that have come to faith in the, in the harshest conditions. The most dangerous conditions, and I always ask myself would i what would i do how would i would would I trust in Jesus if my life was on the line, like so many of these first century Christians that were fed to lions? you go study your church history, and Nero would literally sow these Christians up in animal skins and dip them in tar and light them on fire. All they had to do was renounce Christ. What would you do? The Bible warns us in many places, do not love the world or the things in the world for the love of God is not in those who love the world. World and brothers and sisters, when we come to Christ, we must be willing to give it all up, we must be willing to pick up our cross and, well, walk in. See, this the the disciples actually got it. Look with me at verse 28. Peter gets it, he says, Uh. Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. Now, Peter wants to make sure that Jesus recognizes his sacrifice. Lord, um, I hear you, okay? But, you know, we left everything and we followed you. Uh, What about us? Now, notice even how Jesus tenderly deals with Peter And I'm sure Peter wasn't the only one that had this question. He's just a spokesperson. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So what does Jesus do? Jesus says, you don't understand the kingdom. You don't understand the graciousness of the heavenly father. For you have given up nothing that will not be returned to you a hundred times over. And better. Well, do you have a contract to you? Can you put that in writing? And Brothers and sisters, Listen. The rich young ruler in this situation stands as a class of believer. Yes, he's an individual. Yes, this was a real engagement. But for our purpose, he stands as a class of believer who is good, who believes in God, who believes in heaven and hell, but has never dealt with the idolatry of their own heart And come to Christ with nothing but the forgiveness of their sins. Abandoning that goodness. I'm not good in the very essence of things. And we're going to talk about that going forward. But for our purpose of application and walking away from this message, that's what I want to leave you with. When good is not good enough. I mean, good may be good for your neighbor. I mean, it may be good for the guy at work and your work situations, your school and all of these other things, but it's not good enough for eternal life. And when you come to Christ, you have to contend with the idolatry of your heart. And if you don't, you will never, ever possess saving faith. You could be anger. Bitterness, laziness, greed, selfishness, lustfulness. What is it that you think identifies you? Outside, look, I don't want to be identified with nothing but a Jesus believer, a follower, a disciple. If you're content with that, brothers and sisters, I would say Jesus has filled your heart. But if you're not content with that, and there's still other things that you need, that you possess, that you want, that these are important, and these things matter to you, maybe not. You need to contend with God's word and ask yourself, have I really repented of my idolatry? And have I ever truly, sincerely come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we are most thankful that we have been able to look at this text of Scripture, this engagement of our Lord Jesus with this rich young ruler. So many things, Lord, we learn from it. And yet we must walk away now thinking and pondering and considering. Have we truly died to self? Or did we just bring Jesus in as a, an accommodation, as a as someone to help us save ourselves, Lord? Or have we truly put to death those lusts, desires, the greeds, those passions that are, well, contrary and Lord, to, to faith, contrary to the kingdom of God, contrary to Jesus being the good teacher, teaching good things. And Father, I pray for us here this morning that we would seriously contend with this truth and humbly submit to it and reckon with you, whatever that is. I'm gonna pray this in Christ's name, amen.